Okay, today uh, we start a two-part sermon. Uh, The Lord willing, I'll give the second part next week. And actually, it's the second part that ties everything together. So I guess in a sense, uh, I'll leave you hanging a little bit today. Uh, This is divided into two parts of Jacob's life. Jacob is a very important character in the Bible. He, of course, is the grandson of Abraham. He is the, you know, the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is found many times in Scripture. And so he is one of the patriarchs. And the thing that sets Jacob apart from others is that it is through Jacob, as strange as the story is, it is through Jacob that the actual nation of Israel is born. And so there's a direct line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the covenant promise that was made to Abraham was repeated to Isaac, And that very same promise is repeated to Jacob. And then from there, instead of dealing with one individual at a time like that, now we have it branched off into 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes are the people that make up the original nation of Israel. Israel, because as we're going to see next week, Jacob's name is going to be changed to Israel. And so in a sense, Jacob is Israel. He is the father of the nation. And so that's why this section of scripture is very important to us. And that's why we're spending a couple of weeks on it, because Jacob is a very key figure. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. And this is a very interesting passage. I'm covering seven chapters, so I hope you're comfortable. Uh, The thing about this section of Scripture is that there are really what I would call some unsettling or strange customs that we're going to be faced with. As we go through here, one of the things that grabs our attention are the names. And as you have seen by now, no doubt, names are given to people in the Bible in order to correspond with or to convey something about their character, something about that person. Remember, Isaac means laughter. And we remember he got his name because when God made the promise to Abraham and Sarah, they laughed at God. And so his name is laughter. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if I uh, went up to Rocky and, and his name was laughter? Hey, laughter. Well, that would be weird, but it wouldn't be quite so weird if Rocky was known for laughing all the time, right? Like I could call Kate Giggler because she giggles all the time. And so that that would be her name. We could call Josh Smart Alec. We could, uh, 
you know, there, there, it'd be interesting, really, to see what our church family would call us if they named us based on their experiences with us or uh, some characteristic that we ha had. So this is an interesting thing. It, it's a strange thing because we don't name our children like that. Uh, but that's certainly the way that they do, did in Bible times. Now we're going to talk about birthrights. And uh, that's something that's foreign to us. We don't really uh, talk about things like that. We need to understand that in that day, the firstborn... That position of being the oldest was very significant because in a patriarchal era, they would be the patriarch. They're going to be the next leader of the family or the tribe or, or, or whatever. And also, it had some real advantages because when it came inheritance time, when the, your father died, if you were the firstborn... If you had the birthright, you received twice as much as the others. And so there was a double portion given to the patriarch, the future patriarch, or the oldest, the one who received the birthright. And so we've got this crazy story about uh, birthrights, and then inheritance and blessings, uh, it was a custom that when the patriarch was on his deathbed, he would call all of his children there together, uh, like you see this in Genesis 49, when Jacob calls all of his sons together, and before he dies, he confers a blessing on each one of them. Well, that's not the way it happened in this passage, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So this idea of blessing uh, at the death of the patriarch or the head of the family, that's a strange custom to us. And then we have some really, really weird customs that come into play. Endogamy. Anybody know what endogamy stands for? Marrying your cousins. Yeah. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to see that in this passage of scripture. As weird as that sounds, that's, that's what we're reading about here. That's what happened. That was the custom. You married your custom. Yeah, imagine that. So uh, then there is the custom of, uh, in case of a woman who was barren, not able to have children, um, a surrogate. You give your handmaid or your slave to your husband, and you could have a child that way. Again, pretty weird stuff, huh? But that's what we find in this passage of Scripture. Then there's all kinds of symbolism. There's all kinds of spiritual connotations attached to almost everything that happens in the story. There are actually prophetic things taking place within the story. There are types and shadows of things to come in the future, spiritual realities that we find seeds planted 
in stories like this in the Old Testament that we're going to see later on, aha, oh wow, I get that, and see why the, the story's the way that it is. There are an amazing amount of word plays here which do not come out in your English translations. I am not a Hebrew scholar. Josh is, so now I'm going to invite Josh to come to the stage, and he's going to break down all the word, the Hebrew word plays in this story because they, they are amazing, and it just shows the brilliance, the genius of God, and so you're really going to appreciate as Josh does it. Go ahead, Josh. Come on up. <laughs> No, it would really be cool. It really would, but that's not the scope of this sermon, so we're just going to keep moving, okay? All right. There's a lot of other things in this passage, in these seven chapters. There's deception, lying, favoritism, greed, trickery, jealousy, anger, hatred, radical family dysfunction. You think your family's messed up? Look at this one. There's some messed up things going on here. We have dreams and visions. Theophanies occur in this passage. Angels showing up in the form of a man. Maybe even God showing up in the form of a man next week. Uh, we have covenant renewal, covenant promises, God's plan. A nation is formed, and again, the seeds of a Messiah to come. So these seven chapters, and then the chapters next week, are full of incredibly interesting things. So now let's get into all of this. And as you could imagine, there is no way that I'm going to be able to give attention to all the details, okay? So bear with me on that. I just encourage you to go home and read your Bibles, read the passage a number of times, read it carefully, prayerfully, take your time as you read through these things, think it through, look up uh, references uh, that go along with this and you'll get a whole lot more out of it. So, in Genesis chapter 25, we have the birth of twins. Well, they're not identical twins. In fact, there's not much of anything alike about them. The oldest one, the first one's name is Esau. Well, why in the world would you name somebody Esau? Well, because they're hairy. He's a hairy baby. And so uh, you could just call him Harry or Esau. We find that in the section of Scripture, um, Rebecca is, I guess, kind of a drama queen. She had a difficult pregnancy, and uh, she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? Uh, her, her pregnancy was such that she was ready to die. This is killing me. Maybe some of you ladies have thought the same thing. I don't know. But anyway, it seems to me she's a little like a drama queen. And because we find the same thing 
Similarly, later in the story, when Esau, her son, marries a couple of Canaanite women, a couple of Hittites, and she says, I am weary of my life because of these Hittite women. These are her daughter-in-laws, for crying out loud. You think you got in-law problems? Have you ever thought, oh, my mother-in-law, I am weary of my life because of her. That's what's going on here, you know? So all kinds of uh, craziness and dysfunction in this story. Uh, Esau even was uh, very dramatic, I think. So we have this story after the twins are born. And Jacob, remember, before we get to the story, his name means deceiver. Deceiver or supplanter. He's a bait and switch kind of a guy. That's who he was and that's what his name was because he winds up, even though he's the second one born, he gets the birthright that was reserved for the oldest. And then when it comes time for their dad to die, he winds up manipulating things so that he gets the blessing instead of his brother. So this is a very deceptive thing. This shows the heart of Jacob. This shows the kind of person that he is. He's very materialistic. He's someone who wants the upper hand. He wants the power. He wants the authority. All the things that come with being the patriarch of the family. His heart is in the wrong place. And so is his mother. So let's back up to the birthright story. Esau, the hairy man, he happens to be a hunter. And so he's an outdoors kind of a guy. And so one of the things that he likes to do is to go out hunting and fishing and all that kind of thing. And sometimes that's hard work. And, and, and if you've ever uh, killed a deer or something and you've had to carry it on your shoulders or whatever, make your way up and down the hills to get the deer uh, back home, uh, sometimes when you go hunting, uh, back in the day, you know, they didn't have ATVs to put the deer on and, and drive home. So I'm sure sometimes when you went hunting, you're exhausted. You're worn out. It's been hard work. And so he comes home and he says, I am so hungry. Well, Joseph, uh, one of his gifts, he was sort of a, a chef, good cook. And so he's made this pot of stew. And oh man, it smells good. And you know how good things smell when you're especially starving to death. And I guess maybe that's where that phrase came from, is where Esau comes in and says, I'm going to die if I don't get something to eat. And so he was so hungry, and Jacob looked at the situation and thought, hey, I might can take advantage of this. And he did. And he talked Esau into selling his birthright for a bowl of stew. Now, that's just unimaginable, but that's what happened. 
That's what happened. That also tells us some other things about Esau. Esau was obviously impulsive. Esau also kind of minimized his status and he did not appreciate what it meant to have the birthright or to be the firstborn or whatever. I don't know. He did not think this through. He made a bad decision. You ever make a bad decision because you didn't stop and think through the consequences of what it was you were deciding? Hey, we've all been there. And that's exactly where Esau was in this story. So he forfeits his birthright for a bowl of stew. Well, the Bible tells us in Romans that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Well, there's an explanation there. And even in this passage, whenever Rebecca is struggling in her pregnancy and saying, I would rather die, or whatever she's, she's saying here, God said there are two nations in your womb. So Jacob and Esau represent something much more or much bigger than just the twins of Isaac and Rebekah, okay? So from Esau came the nation of Edom. Edom. Edom means red. And the stew that he sold his birthright for, that's one of the word plays in the Hebrew language. It's red, red stew. And so he sold his birthright, and he's called Edom. And he had a nation, all of his ancestors, all of that nation that came from Esau is the nation of Edom. And Edom and Israel were opponents. They were enemies, and they struggled back and forth for a long time. Now, Part of the blessing, when you get to the end of Isaac's life, we have another deception take place, and everybody's probably familiar with that story. Isaac is an old man. He can't see. He probably can't hear very well, and so he calls his sons, but that's not really what he did. He called his son now, you see the problem here. What's supposed to happen is that he called both of his sons. But we know from what the Bible says that Isaac's favorite was Esau. For whatever reason, he didn't like Jacob. So he didn't even call Jacob in. He was not going to give Jacob anything. Normally what would have happened is he would have called the two sons in, he would have gave them this, both of them a blessing. The firstborn would have got two-thirds of everything that he had, Jacob would have got one-third. So Esau would have got double what Jacob got. But Rebekah, Isaac's wife, knows how he feels about his sons. He plays favorites. Esau's his favorite. Well, her favorite was Jacob, 
And she knows Isaac is not going to give Jacob anything. And that's upsetting to her. She's frustrated. She's angry at her husband because he's not even going to give Jacob anything. And so she knows that Esau has gone out. His father has sent him to go hunting to kill a deer, to make some venison like he'd done so many times, what his father loved. And when he came back to feed his dad, his dad was going to give him the blessing and he was going to inherit everything, everything. So what does Rebecca do? Rebecca intervenes. She pulls Jacob aside and she says, listen, you do what I tell you to do. So she cooked up this meal. They had this meal prepared and while Esau's gone hunting, they disguised Jacob as Esau and they tricked the old man who can't see and probably can't hear very well. He heard well enough to question what might be going on, but the smell and the touch convinced him that he really was dealing with Esau, and so he gives the blessing to the son that's there, Jacob, pretending to be Esau, and then finds out later, here comes Esau from the hunt, and fixing the meal his father wanted, and by the time he gets in there, Isaac is confused and disturbed and saying, wait a minute, who are you? And then he realizes that he's been duped, he's been tricked. He gave the blessing to Jacob, and now here is Esau. And so we read all this, and we scratch our heads, and we think, well, why don't you just take it back? Why didn't he just call Jacob in and say, well, wait a minute, you tricked me. I gave you the blessing. I'm going to take it back and give it to Esau because that's who I wanted to give it to in the first place. Again, customs, traditions, right? There's stuff going on here we don't understand. And the custom and the tradition of the day was when the patriarch spoke a blessing, it was considered as done. It was just like God saying, let there be light, and there was light. You don't take it back. There was no taking it back. There was no reversing it. There, there was no way to do that in that culture. And so once the blessing had been given, the blessing was given, period. That's it. Now, whether or not we understand that, or whether or not that makes any sense to us, that is the way things were at that time. So, the blessing has been stolen. And the blessing that's been stolen is extremely upsetting to Esau. Now, you imagine how you would feel. You're the oldest. Your dad's favorite, and dad wants to give you 
everything. Everything. Imagine that. And Jonathan comes in and tricks, no. Just kidding. <laughs> that's an inside joke, folks. That's an inside joke. That's, a, that's an inside family joke. So anyway, Esau, needless to say, is furious. Furious. And Esau's thinking, okay, I'll take care of this. He is so angry, he decides, I'll kill him. I will kill him. When I get the chance, I'm the next Cain. I'm killing my brother. Well, Rebecca gets wind of it. What does she do? She steps in again. Jacob, come here. Son, you better do exactly as I tell you. And here's the way she uses the situation. He needs to flee for his life, all right. But she comes up with a good reason why he should run. It has nothing really to do with Esau directly, but it does indirectly. It's not about him killing his brother. It's the fact that Esau has already married these two Canaanite women, which I can't stand. And so she comes to Isaac and she says, my daughter-in-laws are killing me. We need to send Jacob to my brothers so that he can find a good woman. Endogamy. He needs to go find a cousin and get married. Now why would they do that? That is so weird to us. That is so strange to us to go and marry your cousin. Well, the reason they did that was because it was the way that they felt was best to keep the family together, to keep all the possessions of the family together, to keep all the beliefs of the family together, to keep all the traditions and customs of the family together. And if we're going to keep this thing together, if we're going to keep everything the same, if we're going to keep everything the way we think it should be and the way uh, we believe, then we got to marry somebody who believes just like it. So we married within the family. So that's what's going on here. Now things changed over time, thankfully. And those customs changed. But anyway, that's what's going on, and that's why they did that sort of thing. So, Jacob takes off, and he runs for his life. And so Esau, you know, things have gone pretty bad for Esau. And he knows how his parents feel about his wives. And so he thinks, I'll just give me another one. I'll give me one they like. And so he goes and gets another wife. But he goes to the family of Ishmael. Now you remember who Ishmael is? 
Everybody remember who Ishmael is? He's Isaac's half-brother. So Ishmael is his uncle, but Ishmael is not the son of promise. God didn't make the covenant. God didn't uh, give him the Abrahamic promise and covenant. He gave it to Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son, not Ishmael. So really by going and marrying Ishmael's daughter, Esau just messes up again. He once again proves that he shouldn't be the patriarch anyway. He sold his birthright for a pot of soup. Now he impulsively goes and gets another wife that in reality is not going to please his family. And he's wanting to kill his brother, so it's gone from bad to worse. He's proving over and over and over. He's not the right one. So no wonder God chose Jacob. I know Jacob, everybody thinks how bad Jacob is. He's a trickster, he's a deceiver, he's a liar, he's a cheat. Yes, he is. Esau's not so great, people. <laughs> okay. Neither one of them are. God chose Jacob, and that's where the nation of Israel was going to come from. Now, what does that teach us about God? We're going to see a different man next Sunday. We're going to see a changed man next Sunday. We're going to see somebody who is obedient to God, who humbles himself before God. We're going to see a totally different kind of person than what we're seeing now in Jacob. So hang on to that. But what this tells us about God is that God's will, God's plan, is going to be accomplished in spite of us. Okay? And God can use anybody to accomplish his purposes. I run into people all the time that act like that they think they need to be perfect in order for God to use them. You talk to people sometimes about maybe getting involved in a ministry, or you talk to someone about even coming to church, or you talk to somebody about any number of topics, any number of things, and people often will respond with something like, well, yeah, when, you know, when I quit this, or when I quit that, or when I get it together, then I'll give my life to God, or then I'll get involved in ministry, or then I'll... God uses people like Jacob and he works in them and he changes them. And you know the thing we're going to see next week about this changed man? It took 20 years. It took at least 20 years for him to change. And so the change begins on this journey that he's making to Uncle Laban, Rebecca's brother's house, where he's going to find a cousin to marry. And so on the way, he's tired from his journey, he goes to sleep, he lays his head on a rock, and he 
has a dream. Now, this is the first patriarch that we read of in Scripture that has a dream, or God communicates to him through a dream. And here's the dream. There's a ladder going from heaven to earth. You probably heard of Jacob's ladder. Well, this is it. This is the story. And what does he see? He sees angels going up and down the ladder. In other words, back and forth from heaven to earth. He sees angels. And then he sees God standing over it all. God standing there looking down on all of this activity. And so when he wakes up, he's like, wow, how awesome is this place? Why would he respond that way? Why would he be so excited? Why would he be filled with awe and inspired the way that he was? The reason why is because he had experienced the presence of God. When you experience God in your life, when God shows up, when you know God is there, when you know God helps when you know he provides, when you know God is working, that is inspiring. That is awesome. And I know there are people in this room that can testify to times when God showed up in your life. And it's when God shows up and does amazing things that he gets our attention in a powerful way. I have told you a number of stories in my own life from this pulpit or from in a, a grow group or things like that when God showed up in mine and Becky's lives unexpectedly in many cases. And I have experienced over and over the awe of God's presence. This morning in, in our class, we talked about times when we have experienced or felt the presence of evil and the fear and trepidation that that brings. On the opposite end of the spectrum, when you feel and experience the presence of God, that is a beautiful thing. And in many ways, we love those moments when they happen. When God decides to move directly upon us and in us and through us, it is an amazing, beautiful thing. So what does he do? He puts some stones, he builds a little Hill of stones. What is that? It's another custom. It's another one of those weird customs and traditions. That's what they did. And they did it to commemorate a place, an experience. When God moved, when God was there, when God intervened, when God helped, that's what they did. They want to remember that. And then he gave it a name. He called it Bethel. You know what Bethel means? House of God. That's what he called it, the house of God. And furthermore, he said, this is a gateway to heaven. And we read about this 
same kind of thing, if you'll look in your Bibles in John chapter 1, verse 51, in a conversation that Jesus was having with Nathaniel, and during the conversation that he has with Nathaniel, Nathaniel is in awe of some knowledge that Jesus had about Nathaniel when they had never even met before. Jesus knew what kind of man he was, and yet they had no contact before. And he's like with Jesus, how'd you do that? How did you know that about me? And Jesus' response was, you're going to see a lot bigger, greater, grander things than that. And he told him, you're going to see angels going back and forth from heaven to earth. You see, heaven and earth come together in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's one of these prophetic things that we see in the Word of God in this story. This story about Jacob's ladder and the angels going back and forth, that's what all of that is about, people. That is about preparing the way for the coming of the Son of God. Jesus is coming. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. You hear me? Jesus is the one who orchestrates God's will in heaven being done on earth. Remember, that's what he told us to pray for, right? Pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus is how that happens. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through Jesus. There's your ladder. There's your gateway to heaven. That's what he said. This is the gate of heaven. Where did you hear that recently? Anybody remember? Where did you hear that in the last few weeks? The gateway to heaven. The Tower of Babel. Remember that? The Tower of Babel. Remember that story in Genesis chapter 11? The people that built the tower and were trying to go to heaven, they said this is the gateway to heaven. And of course it wasn't. Man can't get to God on his own. You hear me? You can't have God by yourself. You have to have Jesus. Mohammed is not the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. God has to reach down through his son to us, and that's how we have a relationship with God. We can't build a tower or do anything else to climb up to God and somehow put ourselves on the level of God. If you want to be God-like, if you want to be godly, if you want to have a relationship with God in glory, then you open your arms and you accept Jesus Christ because that's the only way to God. That's where you're going to see the angels going up and down and back and forth and doing their thing. You ever meet an angel? Well, you probably don't know if you did or not. Because most of the time they show up looking much, very much like a human being. My friend Wayne Fussell used to tell a story to a group of people who didn't even believe in angels. 
for the most part. But he used to tell a story about an angel, about a, one time when something happened in his life and God sent an angel to him. I tell you what, there's two or three people in my life that showed up out of nowhere in a critical moment in my life and disappeared in the same way that they came. And I believe they're angels. You see, angels are ministering spirits for the people of God. Angels are carrying out the will of God. And so angels are real and they're important. And so when you look at Jacob's ladder and you look at God's providence and God's protection and God's healing and all these wonderful things, Jacob's ladder is a seed that is planted to grow up into a beautiful Jesus, bringing heaven and earth together. So he makes his way to Laban, the brother-in-law. He, what happens? Oh, he falls in love with Rachel. Oh, have you ever seen Rachel? Oh, my goodness. She is beautiful. She's amazing. In fact, so amazing that when he first saw her, it's almost like he was so overcome, he had supernatural strength. He just rolled the stone away from the well. And the Bible says it normally took three men to do that. Woo. And so, wedding night comes. Joseph, I mean, <laughs> Jacob is excited. And in the dark, he goes into the tent to consummate his marriage. And lo and behold, it ain't Rachel. Oh, ho, ho. Try to wrap your head around that, guys. Some of you, including myself, are married to a woman who has a sister. Yeah. Think about it. It's what you get. This ain't good. This is not good. I would run. But anyway, he loved Rachel so much. Remember, he had to work seven years for this, okay? Seven years went by before this episode. So you think that wouldn't make it worse? You worked seven years for this moment, Sweat and blood and tears. You worked seven years to have this woman. And now you get her sister. And now you got to work seven more years. He goes ahead and lets, her, lets, him, lets him have the, uh, Rachel next week. But he still had to agree to work another seven years for. It's a lot of love for a woman. 14 years of hard labor. What happened? It was a bait and switch deal, Right? That's exactly what happened. Laban did to Jacob exactly what Jacob had done to his brother. You think he felt that? You think that hit his conscience? You think he realized, ooh. Yeah. And we'll talk some more about that next Sunday. But I'm going to wrap it up. 
It's a great story to be continued. Come on up, praise team.